give thanks for how God is made known in music and prayer and the word. So let us now look at the scripture from the New Testament, the first Thessalonians uh, chapter five. Let us listen for the word of the Lord. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And when they say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and there will be no escape. But you, beloved, are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who are drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation." For God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up each other, as indeed you are doing. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This year marked the 25th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. 25 years ago, waves of unleashed exuberance broke out when East German authorities announced, almost as a surprise, that their wall would be open, the checkpoints would be open. And when asked when, the official said immediately. Hearing this, East Berlin residents began to physically tear down the wall with mallets and hammers and hands. The citizens wanted it gone, its memory abolished. Too many people had died there, too many people had wept there. The survivors wanted to make sure that not a stone would stay standing. Manfred Fischer was a pastor at the time in that local parish. He had come to Reconciliation Church in 1975. This church building was divided from its parish by the wall, The building was located in what was called the Death Strip on the east side of the wall, where anyone approaching it without permission would be shot. One person remembers that Reverend Fisher would tend to his flock as East German guards with shoot-to-kill orders would be perched in the bell tower above everyone. Fisher remained the pastor there even after 1985 when the authorities blew up his church to make way for more reinforcements at the boundaries. His church had already been the site of many deaths when Reverend Fisher watched the building crumble to the ground, its steeple tipping into the demolished dust. Yet four years later, as citizens tore at the wall, trying to bring it down, determined to rid their city of its brutal history, Reverend Fisher was one of the few people advocating to maintain a portion of that concrete barrier. He didn't believe in abolishing the wall's memory just because it was painful. He didn't want to pretend that the wall had never existed. As one person remembered, Fisher at first struggled to convince Berliners to embrace this project that would permanently commemorate their trauma. 
They just wanted a sense of normalcy back. However, because of his persistent work and his quiet charisma, Fisher successfully advocated to preserve a portion of the wall. And now a chapel stands near that spot in a mile-long memorial park remembers that time and that reality that happened there. Today, that park and chapel are one of the most visited sites in all of Germany. People stream to it, acknowledging the wall's severing history, reading aloud the names that are inscribed in the Book of Victims, which is displayed on the altar and is read out loud at daily services. Fisher died in 2013, And as one person wrote in remembrance for this pastor, remembering the Berlin Wall was not a victory lap, but was very much unfinished business of healing and reconciliation. As I came across this article this week, Reverend Fisher's honest, eye-opening faith and hope-filled work still reminded me of the words that Paul offered to the Thessalonians nearly 2,000 years before. For Paul was writing to a people who needed encouragement. These were people who had believed that their conversion to Christianity would spell the end of all that was disheartening and frustrating in their lives. Indeed, we are human. It is tempting to forget the past, to think we've progressed beyond it. It is tiring to learn again how much the world still needs work. Paul, the writer of this epistle, knows this. Paul knows that when the world's events seem apocalyptic, when the morning light brings more obligations, when our neighbors' needs drown us in a deluge of guilt, we want to stay in bed a little longer, close our eyes a little tighter, and hold off reality as best as possible. Paul, indeed, is primarily a pastor, even though he is traveling around, and he knows this church of the Thessalonians well, He cares for this congregation. You can see that care throughout all of the verses of this short letter, if you care to read it. Paul can see that they are frustrated, overwhelmed, and perhaps there's even the danger of getting a little bitter about this good news they have received. So he writes this beautiful letter of encouragement, and in the verses that we just heard today, we can hear three exhortations that perhaps might speak to us now. Paul says, beloved children, I need you to wake up, I need you to suit up, and I need you to build up. First, he says, wake up in his most fierce language, trying to startle people out of complacency. The Lord is coming. It will be like labor pains. There will be no escape. Like the Reverend Fisher, Pastor Paul is not content to let his congregation pretend that suddenly everything will be okay. When Paul talks about they who promise peace and security, some scholars believe he was probably referring to the promises of the Roman Empire, the imperial authority which dominated the known world at that time. Rome's Rome's promise to its subjects was that if they would submit to its imperial authority, they would receive the famous Pax Romana or Roman peace. If they let soldiers into their streets, then they would be secure. Paul pushes against these promises, reminding people that what they are living is not peace and security. Despite the words of Rome, all is not well. 
Too many people are oppressed and simply forgotten. Too many voices are not being heard. Too much power is in the hands of too few people. Paul says to the Thessalonians, you, beloved, are not in darkness, though. We belong to the day. These Thessalonians are already children of the light. They must not forget this. They are already alive and awake. They are not drugged or drunk. They are not blind or deaf. Paul is reminding the Thessalonians that they know the spin. The wool is not being pulled over their eyes. Through their faith in God, they are already acknowledging that the world is not as it could be. Paul is reminding these early believers that they have already decided to reach out for a vision beyond the one that is being promised to them in their daily lives. They are already reaching out for a vision they glimpsed in the teacher from Nazareth, a vision they are striving for as they gather together in community, worship, and sharing. As children of the day, we can hear these words echoing to us now. We are not called to keep things secret and hidden. We are not called to deny the reality of the world. We are called to see the world as it is, without propaganda. We are called to see ourselves as we are, as Psalm 123 describes, without pretense. We do not want a half-hearted faith. We want our faith to become more and more authentic, real, lit from the inside out, weaknesses acknowledged, pain unconcealed, hoped for reality made known. Wake up, Paul says, and see the world and see ourselves as we most truly are. But do not get stuck there. Paul has more words. He says, suit up. Put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope. And this is not just a turn of phrase. Paul is carefully choosing defensive armor here, armor that does not include a weapon, but instead protects the head and the heart. And indeed, for anyone who practices open-eyed realism, there should, come, there should be a warning label. Because when we start to see the world as it actually is, we can quickly become bitter. And if we acknowledge that our faith, what all of our faith actually looks like in the light of day, full of holes and shadows and spots we would rather not expose, if we see these things as they are, we can easily become cynical. It is no accident that a slippery cynicism fills our cultural humor and political rhetoric. For as our world seems more and more connected, as our eyes are filled with more images of faraway suffering, as we know more and feel like we can do less, we instead try to buffer our hearts with irony or fatalism or even sheer busyness. Or sometimes we try to tiptoe back into ignorance, return to proclaiming that everything is just fine, or it will be if we just get rid of that leader or change that one thing. Paul is saying, no, don't fill your head and your heart with distraction. Fill them with faith and hope and love. Suit up, Paul says, because the world's needs are going to batter you. You cannot pretend all is well anymore. 
and you cannot pretend that it is all going to be easy. You are awake and alive. You see the world more honestly. You acknowledge your need for God more fully, and now we must prepare ourselves for what lies ahead. Practice, practice putting on these acts of faith and hope and love. Cloak yourselves in these truths. And so we can turn to his last exhortation to us and read, encourage one another, build up each other, as indeed you are already doing. Paul reminds us that we are not in this alone. We do not have to take the world on on our own. Sometimes we need help, and sometimes others need help. So we must build up each other with words and deeds, with kindness and forgiveness and honesty. Indeed, if you had been out on 35th Street yesterday, you would have seen this happening in very tangible ways. For Habitat for Humanity is an organization that knows what it means to offer mutual upbuilding together. When Habitat sets out to build a house for someone, they carefully choose an owner, an owner who will be involved in the process, who will be open about their own finances and ability, an owner who will be able to contribute their own sweat equity. But no owner builds the house on his or her own. They are given tools and support, and other communities are invited to join in the building. No matter what the task, framing or painting, the owner is not on their own. Yesterday, a dozen members of Second Pres, ranging from 17 to their 70s, showed up on a Saturday off to help out and to build a home. And indeed, building a house is never easy. It takes time and energy, preparation and maintenance. It takes many different tools and many different skill sets. And indeed, a community is the same way. A community will not be strong if everyone coasts on the surface, pretending that all is well, just aiming for convenience and easiness and efficiency. A community, a congregation, needs a variety of people offering a variety of gifts, needs honesty and upkeep, faith and hope and love. Build up each other, Paul says to us now, And he continues with the following verses, saying, Take the time to encourage one another. Help the weak. Be patient. Spend energy to see each other through tough times. Don't forget to rejoice and pray and give thanks. This is a tough world. It is not simple. It has never been easy. But you are not alone. You are in this together. And if we don't invest in this community, we might miss out on the joy that can be found, the joy of putting hearts and hands and minds together, the joy that comes from remembering that we are made to be alive and awake, full of faith and love and hope in relationship with one another. Jean Vanier knows how to build community. Vanier is a devoted Catholic a Canadian philosopher, 
a formal Navy officer, and the founder of the worldwide L'Arche community. L'Arche residential communities are places where people who are physically or intellectually disabled live and work alongside those who are intellectually and physically abled. One thing that Jean Vanier insists upon is the importance of acknowledging reality. L'Arche communities do not hide the fact that being a part of them can be difficult. Helping someone slowly wash and dress and eat each day is exhausting and inefficient. And yet, after you go through the exhaustion and inefficiency and come out the other side, you can discover the beautiful reality of a relationship lived honestly, without barriers. Indeed, he points out relationship is something we all need, we all desire. Those who are crying out, do you love me? Echo the words of Jesus himself when he said to Peter, do you love me? We are not in this world alone, and we each need to be reminded of that. Vanier insists that facing things honestly is the key to discovering that even in the very real, very difficult circumstances of everyday life, God is still present. Indeed, God is most truly present. It is important to acknowledge this truth, this reality. And yet, Vanier, like Paul, does not want people to stop there. He wants people to be honest so that they are able to take the next step of faith and begin to build something beautiful within community. To illustrate this, Vanier tells the story of sitting in his office in a large home. And there was a visitor with him, a man who was a bit glum, and he describes a bit glum in the way that a lot of people are a bit glum these days. And while they are sitting there, there is a knock at the door. And before I could say, come in, Jean-Claude walked in. Jean-Claude was a well-known member of our community and technically would be Down syndrome. Jean-Claude shook my hand and he laughed. And then he turned to the visitor and he shook his hand and he laughed. And then he went out laughing, joyful. And the visitor looked at me and said, isn't that sad, children like that? The visitor could only see the world as it is as a place where some people have Down syndrome and some people do not. He couldn't see the love, the hope, the, the courage that L'Arche residents were draping around Jean-Claude. And this visitor couldn't see that Jean-Claude was offering something back. He was building up the community with his delight, his cheer, his encouragement. Vanier points out that what was sad was the fact that this visitor could only see physical disability. And so he was disabled himself with total blindness. Friends, we receive these words of encouragement. So let us turn to one another and encourage each other. Let us not let the world's needs blind us to the joy that is still in our midst, the laughter that can still be had whether in an office room or on a habitat site or in our daily life. 
We must honestly describe what the world is and what it has been. We must not close our eyes to that. But we, as people of faith and hope and love, must also describe what the world could yet become. Friends, together, let us wake up. Let us suit up. Let us build up and work towards that vision, casting off the cynicism of the world and acknowledging instead that there is something greater which we can all strengthen together. Let us pray. Lord, we are your people. Teach us again to take a step of faith and work to strengthen the community of your children here on earth, here and now. In your holy name we pray. Amen.